Итак, если у вас есть Библия, можете открыть вместе со мной. And so, if you have a Bible, you can open along with me to familiar place of Scripture to us that still contains a depth of the mysteries of God and the depths of the wisdom and visions of God. Matthew chapter 5, verses 5 and 48. So that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You, therefore, must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. The sermon that I would like to continue is called just this, called to perfection. Unfortunately, when many children of God read this place of Scripture, they don't even look at it in depth. Is it truly possible in our earthly bodies to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect? What is necessary to do so that we can obtain this perfection? And we know that the verb so that you may be, be, is a phrase that commands a commandment to be just as our Father is. If we were born from the seed of the word of truth, then we already in our spirit have that which the Heavenly Father has. We with time begin to grow gaining his character and his attributes if we, of course, if we grow and if we do not remain in infancy. By remaining in infancy, we are not never going to be able to demonstrate the perfection of the Heavenly Father and be carriers of this unique and great nature. And this promised commandment is the inheritance of the saints of all time and it's addressed by Christ to his disciples. And therefore, those who do not accept the authority of the person sent by God have no relation whatsoever to the inheritance of this commandment. It should be borne in mind that this kind of a person is not chosen by democratic way of voting. God leads him, anoints him, and establishes or points him through an apostle, not just because of the self-revelation of this person who comes out and says, I've received a revelation. Unfortunately, we know that in many so-called Christian churches, at the head of these churches, there are people who are chosen by way of democratic votes. And these kind of people cannot be spiritual people. A spiritual person will never allow for him to be chosen. He will never allow this. And a spiritual person will never allow him to be self-called, saying, God is going to call me. How has God called you? Through whom has God called you? And these congregations are, of course, focused on their carnal natures and will never be able to be perfect as their Heavenly Father is perfect. And therefore, they will have no relation whatsoever to this commandment. With regard to the fulfillment of this commandment, we've stopped to study the purpose of God's righteousness in the heart of a person. What purpose is the righteousness of God in our heart intended to fulfill? If, of course, it is located there, and we don't, we're not referring to justification that we received a gift as a de 
pause it. We're talking about righteousness. When we have grown the seed of justification into fruit, when we have placed it into circulation and have received it as our own property. And specifically, we have stopped to study at the purpose of the righteousness of God in our heart accepted by us and the broken tablets of testimony in which we, with the law, died to the law so that we could live for the one who died and rose and in doing so, receive the affirmation of our salvation in the new tablets that are intended to give God the basis to give us the promise not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. The broken tablets spoke of the death of Christ. The new tablets spoke of the image of grace, the image of grace where God makes with Israel a new covenant. Yes, this was an image, a symbol, but it still remains in the body of Christ in power. And therefore, um, we are called, or God is intended to give us the promise, or God intends to give us the basis for the promise, not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, just as he has given it to Abraham and his seed. For the promise that he would be the heir of peace was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. What is this promise to be heirs of peace that we're talking about? To inherit peace means to receive the peace of God in our hearts, in our souls, and in our bodies. This means to become carriers of a heavenly body. It becomes to destroy the power of the power of sin and death in our lives and to cast it away from there and to and to raise up the power of resurrection, only then will, the, will we be heirs of peace. And we've noted that the righteousness of faith in our heart is defined by the obedience of our faith to the faith of God, or our obedience to the gospel words spoken by the messenger of God in the face of a person who represents the fatherhood of God for us. Our faith in the faith of God are completely different disciplines because the faith of God is information that comes from hearing the word of God. Faith is from hearing. It's not an emotion, I feel this, I, I think that. This is knowledge. And our faith is our submission and our obedience to that word which we hear. People don't even, uh, even think about the fact that there exists the faith of God or the faith of man and how the faith of God is able to cooperate with the faith of man with what segments and with what meanings and properties the faith of God has and what properties does the faith of man have. Not understanding these things, we will not be able to cooperate our faith with the faith of God. We are always going to turn to our feelings and say, I think this, or, or I feel this, or I don't feel that. And therefore, the promise of the peace of God is given only to those people who obey the order of God, cooperation with which he sends us his word through the mouth of the messengers of God. Therefore, the covenant of peace in the heart of a person is the result of the obedience of his faith to the faith of God in the words of the messenger of God. And through the righteousness of faith, the covenant of peace presented in the inheritance of peace is called to abide and serve as evidence in the heart of a person 
that he is the child of God. This is evidence that we are children of God. How do I know that I am a child of God? How do I know if I have inherited the promise of peace? The promise of peace in our heart is a state. It's not an emotion. It's a state. And therefore, the inheritance of peace that abides in a peace are in fact the riches of our hope in God that contain all the promises of God that yield the purpose of righteousness or the goals of righteousness, the realization of which is the righteousness given to us. Only through righteousness by faith can we inherit the promise or can we enter into the inheritance of the precious promises of God. Thus, it is righteousness through the peace of God contained in the covenant of peace that can keep our hearts and our thoughts in Jesus Christ. Because for as he thinks, so is he. If he is going to think about what is divine or what is heavenly, that means that this is a ready document for the seal of righteousness. If he meditates on what is Earthly, this is a prepared document for the seal or the mark of the beast. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts, meaning will keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Devil is going to throw all of hell. He is going to throw all religious powers, all kinds of teachings against you, so that we can, against you against us so that we can be taken out of Christ Jesus out of this kind of thinking so that he can distort our thinking of Christ Jesus because from this will depend our future and our present and the scripture says be anxious for never for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God with thanksgiving means that we must have knowledge that all that we intend to ask God has already been answered and has already already been placed on our accounts in Christ Jesus. We need to thank God that on our accounts lay answers to these promises. And we just need to ask God for Him to teach us how do we take off the balance that is located in our account. This is the question of faith or not. To take or deposit from our account, or to withdraw, excuse me, to withdraw from our account. Because faith works through information, through revelation. It's not what I feel. The Holy Spirit gives knowledge. This is yours, daughter. This is yours, son. And when I receive knowledge, only then do I begin to say and to proclaim myself either healed or, or prosperous when this might not be so quite yet. Because I have received knowledge in myself. But when people say, it's written here, that's why I proclaim this as mine. These are idle words. There are, there's a lot of written words in the Bible, but all that is written in the Bible, it's necessary for it to be engraved and to sealed in our hearts and written in our hearts. God answers only to that which has been rewritten from the book, from the Holy Scripture, onto the holy tablets of our heart. And so the peace of God can only guard those thoughts in Christ Jesus that are renewed by the spirit of our mind, which is the mind of Christ in our spirit. 
Because for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because a carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. These are ready candidates for the mark of the beast. They are ready care candidates for the mark of the beast. That which we meditate upon, if it becomes a document, then on this document, a seal or a mark is placed on. A seal is not ever placed on something that's not already a legal prepared document. A seal is already placed upon a prepared document. God makes a covenant with a person. A covenant is a seal when, when he already has this righteousness. He makes justification or steps into a covenant with a righteous person. And therefore, after baptism on water, a person receives a seal. If, of course, this baptism has been explained to him, but if he doesn't understand what this baptism is, and if authorities say, now, on the bottom of the pool or the water, your sins have been left, and a small girl asks a, a question, Father, can I swim in this pool? He says, why are you asking me such a question? She says, well, you said that my sins have are, are there, or the sins are there. And the father says, I didn't know what to answer my child. They asked me a very interesting question. And this was a leader of a charismatic church. Alexei Ledaev, I've read his books before. He is not embarrassed to speak about these kind of things. And a lot of other pastors think about or consider this as well. They believe this also, that sins are left in the pool or the ocean or, or the river. We are immersed into the death of Christ so that we can receive a seal. Abraham had received a seal, circumcision, that he had before this seal. He had justification before. He was already righteous. God makes a covenant only with righteous people. And this covenant that God makes is a seal. But if a person thinks about earthly things and he makes with God a covenant, then this covenant immediately loses its status. It immediately loses its position and status. Why? Because he meditates on what is earthly. He is preparing a document for the mark of the beast and not for the seal of God. Sometimes people prepare themselves for six months at a time for water baptism and are not, at the very end, don't know what water baptism is, what baptism in the Holy Spirit is, and what baptism in fire is. These are the essences, one, it's a seal, but it must be placed on a prepared document. A person must be prepared for him to accept by faith justification as a gift and to grow righteousness. And then, can he be baptized? Romans chapter 8, verse 8. 
And so, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, it follows that people who do not allow the truth of the preached word and the power of the Holy Spirit to renew their thinking with the spirit of their mind have no relation whatsoever to the peace of God. And they may never have it. And consequently, these people have no relation to the sons of peace who through the peace of God inherit eternal salvation in the kingdom of heaven. Only through this peace between myself and God can I inherit the kingdom of heaven. We must understand that through the cooperation of our hearts with our spirit and our thoughts that are found in Christ Jesus, we are called to reign the resurrection of Christ in our bodies and clothe our bodies into the resurrection of Christ. With regard to this, we have stopped to study the fourth question. According to what signs shall we test ourselves to see if we are the sons of peace and the sons of God? Because according to the reign of the peace of God in our heart, we must define in ourselves if we are the sons of God. As it is written, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Only peacemakers will be called sons of God. And to make peace can only be sons of peace. If you don't have, if you're not sons of God, how can you create peace or make peace? You might be able to make peace like a psychologist trying to convince and show, uh, show or prove to a husband and wife to not divorce. But how can you bring this peace from within, from inside? To show that the peace of God is a legislation of God and that a husband and wife or opposing sides must forgive one another and stop violating God's order. Show them the legislation. The peace of God is a legislation of God. We've noted that if a person has not died to his nation, to the house of his father and to his corrupt desires, the justification that he's accepted in salvation through faith in Christ Jesus will never be transformed into the quality of righteousness in which he would be able to offer and to bring fruit of peace. And therefore, for these kinds of people, their crown of righteousness will be taken, which gave them the right to the inheritance of people in which they could be called sons of God. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Revelations chapter 3, verse 11. What is this crown that we're talking about? This is the fruit of righteousness. This is the fruit of righteousness. When we accept justification, and when we become righteous, only then can we practice righteousness. And when we, having accepted justification, do not agree with our proclamations with what we feel but what we know and when we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God calling the non-existent as existent we practice righteousness only righteous people can practice righteousness only he who is holy can hallow in previous services we in a certain format as far as God and the level of our faith have allowed us have already studied the first six signs uh, to demonstrate that we are the sons of God and we've stopped to study the seventh sign the seventh sign by which we must judge of our partaking to the sons of peace is by the ability to clothe our essence into the holy or the selective love of God the selective love of God is a holy love 
It means that God loves some and despises others. It means that God does not love everyone. He loves those who love him, and he despises those who despise him. And that's why when you hear that somebody is saying that God loves everyone, know that this person is headed toward perdition. Only people who are headed toward perdition can offend God by saying that he loves everyone. God can't love the wicked and lawless people. He's holy. His love is holy. And holy means selective. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. To be, uh, to be friendly, not with the wicked and lawless, but between one another. The selective love of God is presented by the Holy Spirit, as we know, in the light of seven unearthly virtues through the preached word of the apostles and prophets. These virtues we must demonstrate in our faith. And these are virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly love, and love. This is written in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. And out of the seven, um, out of the seven virtues, we've already studied the first five virtues and will continue to study the virtue of the love of God in the sixth characteristic. This is brotherly love. And we've already noted that the purpose of the selective love of God that we are called to demonstrate in our faith and brotherly love gives us the ability to go from the state of death into the state of eternal life. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. To hate is to envy your brother. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. To lay down our lives is to share our abundance with our brothers, to share with him that which you have a lot of and he might have a little of. When a person is born of God, as we know, he is given the choice to either enter a state of death and become dead to God and unsuitable for any good deed, or enter a state of eternal life that he did not know of before and become fit for all good deeds and demonstrating brotherly love. Thus, each person, born of God, is placed in the position of Adam in the Garden of Eden, who was offered eternal life in the fruits of the Tree of Life. He didn't have it, he was offered it. And eternal death in the fruits of the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. And being a carnal man, Adam was called to eat from the fruit of the Tree of Life. He was, he was not an eternal man. He became a living soul. He was in a spiritual person. 
He was offered eternal life in the fruits of the tree of life and eternal death in the fruits of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But being a carnal man, Adam was called to eat from the fruit of tree of life so that his terrestrial body would transform into a heavenly body. In other words, to be born of God through the resurrection of Christ and thus become a carrier of the light of life of a different order that could represent the Sabbath of the Lord where God could find his eternal dwelling, it was necessary through demonstrating whether love and our faith gain a state of heart that could become an atmosphere to be a fortress of God. And the flaming power of God's love agape, which discovers itself in brotherly love, is hidden in the commandments established by God. So we must, in relation to one another, do not what we feel, whether or not we like somebody or not like somebody, whatever our relationship toward him may be, we must do as the commandment of the Lord tells us to do. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. In that moment, the disciples had not yet had peace in them. It was with them, but it wasn't in them, because this peace was called to become the Holy Spirit. Observing the commandments of the Lord is demonstrating the selective love of God in our faith and brotherly love, which gives God the basis to bring us from a state of death into a state of life through our ability to accept the Holy Spirit as Lord and ruler of our life. Not baptism in the Holy Spirit with the gift of tongues, but the Holy Spirit in the quality of Lord and Ruler because the majority of people who were baptized in the Holy Spirit with the gift of tongues don't have the Holy Spirit in them. They receive the ability to speak in tongues. Some think that, no, you've accepted the Holy Spirit at the time of baptism in the Holy Spirit. They accepted the Holy Spirit, they did accept Him, and the Holy Spirit had then immediately left Him because in these, the hearts of these people, the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ was not engraved in their hearts where the Holy Spirit might dwell. Their hearts were not prepared for the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, and therefore the Holy Spirit had, had left Him. And he had, like he had left Bethel, the father of Rebecca, he remained only with Rebecca, and he had taken Rebecca. You see, we have these images that the Holy Spirit can be a guest or he can be a master. If he is a guest, he arrived and he left. That's why many Christians have came up with songs, Holy Spirit, you are the guest of heaven. That's why they invite him to church at the beginning of service. They say, Lord, we invite you. The Holy Spirit, please come. We welcome you. But when church ends, they don't even think to say to this guest, all right, you've called him as a guest, and then what? What now? Being a young person, I had oftentimes came up and had said to those who had called the Holy Spirit as a guest, I said, well, you said the Holy Spirit, come, we welcome you. Are you sure that he was there? They say, yes. I said, okay, well, now that you've left, where does the Holy Spirit go? 
Or when you go, you're going to call him to the same place again. What, do you just leave him on his own after you leave? For when the Holy Spirit enters as Lord and ruler of your life, he doesn't ever need to be invited. He is already there. He is a master, not you are the master. He is the master. But if he's a guest, of course, continue to sing, Lord, Holy Spirit, you are the guest of heaven. He's going to continue to be a guest. And if he is just a guest, you will not be saved. Because you will simply be those who are called, but not chosen. And called are those who will perish. Many are called, but few are chosen. The called did not want to be chosen. They didn't want to pay a price. They didn't want to bow themselves and to give their vessels to allow the Holy Spirit to drink and to feed his ten candle, camels. Ten means holiness. To satisfy the holiness of the Heavenly Father is what that symbol means. And so, the ability to accept the Holy Spirit in our heart as Lord and ruler of our life occurs only when fulfilling the commandments of Christ that regulate our relationship with God through our relationship with our brothers in the faith, our neighbors, for whom we are called to lay down our lives so that we could give the God the basis to lead us from death to life. Thus, the goodness of God could be poured only into a heart that is cleansed from dead works and the love of God, agape. And this kind of outpouring of the love of God in our heart occurs through Thumim in the dignity of the commandments of Christ and Urim in the face of the Holy Spirit who reveals in our heart the truth that is contained in the commandments of Christ. Thus, the love of God agape through Thumim and Urim that abides in our hearts reveals itself in the atmosphere of brotherly love which dominates with its power over the emotional element of our human feelings through proclamations of the faith of God abiding in our heart. And proclamations of the faith of the heart control our emotions like a good rider controls his horse. If anyone does not stumble in a word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look at also at those chips, at those ships. Though they are so large and are driven by the fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder whenever the pilot desires. James chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. Do not stumble a word when demonstrating brotherly love is to speak of our brothers not by the hearing of our ears or the sight of our eyes, but by the truth contained in the atmosphere of God's commandments. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 3-5 through From this prophecy it follows that one of the purposes of brotherly love is to protect us from the reproach of our brothers and lawless people who, until a certain point, will be found among the saints, just like tares are found among the wheat up until a certain point. With this regard, it was necessary for us to answer four classic questions. By what characteristics should we define people who are part of the category of our brothers, for not all those who sit to the left and right of us are a part of this category. 
for which or for whom we are called to lay down our lives in order to demonstrate brotherly love in our faith. If Apostle Paul says, beware of every brother who acts disorderly, that means that a disorderly brother should not be helped because he opposes God. He does not acknowledge the order in the body of Christ. Second, what purpose is the selective love of God called to fulfill in brotherly love toward one another? What conditions are necessary to fulfill to demonstrate the selective love of God and brotherly love in our faith? And by what signs should we test ourselves for the presence of brotherly love toward one another in the selective love of God? And as we've noted before, we're not talking about those brothers in flesh and blood, brotherly love among saints, as written, let brotherly love continue. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. After all, as far as we know, that both in the same, in the time of the law of Moses and in the present time, relating to the law of grace, not all who call themselves brothers are recognized as the seed of God. Brothers means the seed of God, born from the seed of the Heavenly Father, from His Word. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as a seed. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. So when we accept the promise, the promise that it tied, that's tied to a commandment, only then can we be children of God. And brothers include all saints in Christ, regardless if they are male or female. Because a brother in Christ is that person, either male or female, who is able to proclaim the faith of his heart. The proclamation of the word. The word is the seed. By proclaiming the faith of God, we do what? We fulfill the functions of a male. By accepting the word of God, we, despite, despite we're male or females, we fulfill the function of a daughter, Zion. And therefore, in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 through 29. Thus, the dignity with which a brother in Christ is endowed in Scripture is determined by the dignity of a neighbor. It was necessary for us to define who among us can be called our neighbor and can be our brother in Christ Jesus so that we can do good to him. But first, let me remind you that all that God has done for us to lead us into the uncharted inheritance of Christ is possible to inherit only by demonstrating brotherly love in our faith. Considering that brotherly love steps into legal power and gains its legitimacy when we comprehend that we are found in a state of infancy and are swayed by all kinds of winds of teaching according to the cunningness of men, and we decide to leave this infancy. Adam 
Just as the carnal Adam was enticed to death, so are carnal people, including the category of infants enticed to death by being swayed away by all kinds of winds of teachings, behind which a person stands who has been chosen by them, who flatters their ears, and who has appointed himself. And that's why they are found in a state of death. To leave infancy uh, contains four different components. First, leave infancy is to accept the authority of one person who is clothed in the powers of the fatherhood of God through revelation in our heart and our refusal to explore the vast internet and evangelic gatherings, which this person is not the head of. To refuse any kind of media that does not come from a person who is established by God over us. Second, to leave infancy is, through instruction and faith, leave and reject our nation, the house of our Father, and the corrupt desires of our soul that are focused on so-called good works. Third, to leave infancy is, through instruction and faith, engrave the truth of the reigning teaching of Christ on the tablets of our heart that have been cleansed from dead works. And fourth, to leave infancy is, through an instruction in faith, accept the Holy Spirit in our heart as Lord and ruler of our life. In a certain format, we have already studied the first three questions and demonstrated the selective love of God and brotherly love and have stopped to study the fourth question. By what results should we test that we carry brotherly love toward one another in the selective love of God? We've already studied some of the results of brotherly love, which will be signs that we love our brothers and have passed from death to life. And the first result of our demonstration of brotherly love in our faith will be when we cast out from the circle of our fellowship the person who secretly slanders our neighbor. If somebody comes and slanders our neighbors, what does slander? You might say, this is false. Well, not, not quite. Not quite. If a person comes up to you and says, you know that she was an adulterer or he was in sin, is this slander or not? This is. Because when God forgives a person, he blots out his sin. And when you are reminded of that which is no longer there, you slander. You then begin to stand for the slander, but God shows, opens the book of life and says, blot it out. It's not there anymore. Blot it out. It's erased, washed. It's not in my book. It's only in your book, Satan. 
These people must be cast out from our circle of friendship. When we cast out this person from the circle of our friendship, this is the result that we demonstrate brotherly love in our faith. The second result of our demonstration of brotherly love in our faith is our ability to be successful in brotherly love, not just demonstrate it, but be successful in brotherly love and be diligent in leading a quiet life to mind our own business and to work with our own hands that we may walk properly toward those who are outside and that we may lack nothing. This result we have already studied as well. And the third result of our demonstration of brotherly love in our faith will be our ability to keep quiet when someone devoid of understanding for whom we are a neighbor despises us or speaks of his neglect. Turns out that our neighbors can also be the category of brothers who are devoid of understanding and we must correctly behave towards them. He who is devoid of understanding despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace or remains silent. Proverbs 11, 12. Pay attention. He despises his neighbor uh, who, he says he, de, he despises his neighbor due to his lack of understanding. That's why um, a wise person or a man of understanding holds his peace, meaning he remains silent. In this proverb, a man of understanding is a neighbor to the man who is devoid of understanding. A man with an understanding is a person with a sound mind who understands what to say, when to say it, and when to keep quiet. Whereas a man devoid of understanding is a person who is weak-witted weak or poor in mind, who has a significant lack of reasonable abilities and in assessing what is happening, and because of his devoid, he neglects his neighbor and his capabilities on which his salvation depends. A man devoid of understanding causes his neighbor who has understanding to feel compassion and carry a responsibility for him before God. This proverb carries three different meanings. This is the relationship of the rational capabilities of our soul with the rational capabilities of our new man. The rational capabilities of our soul is the man devoid of understanding in relation to the rational capabilities of our new man to the mind of Christ. And how does our spirit act toward our mind? By stooping down to its level, because our spirit is the neighbor for our mind. We must renew our thinking with the spirit of our mind, and therefore the new man remains quiet so that he can gain his soul, so that he can save his soul. This is one of the meanings in this proverb. The third, this is the relationship of a person clothed in the powers of the fatherhood of God with people for whom he carries a responsibility for and for whom he is a neighbor. Many of them are still people who are carnal, but this doesn't mean that they can't become spiritual. 
the goal and the purpose of the person who is clothed in the powers of the fatherhood of God is to lead these people out of infancy and to give them the ability to be made spiritual. Therefore, they must be taught not to curse the inheritance of God, not to to pray for them, to ask God to forgive them, to take the guilt of our household upon us. And when pastors don't do this, when they don't meet the requirements, it's written that with their actions that they don't govern over the people of God, but to show, to show an example how we must stoop down to one another. When you stoop down to your brother or sister, I'm right now talking about uh, leaders. He might not understand this right away, but when you stoop down, at one point, the time will come when the Holy Spirit will show him who his brother is, and then he will understand that the person who he neglected his salvation depends on him and he stoops down to him. He will come to you and say, forgive me that I behaved myself in this way, disorderly, neglectful. And you will say, blessed be God who has given you this knowledge and you were able to see this. Third, this is the relationship of a spiritual person with a carnal person, um, just a regular carnal person for whom a spiritual person is a neighbor. The relationship, again, of a spiritual person with a carnal person. A carnal person compared to a spiritual person in the eyes of God is always devoid of understanding. The reason why a carnal person neglects a spiritual person is comprised of the fact that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. However, the lack of understanding of a carnal person who thinks of himself as spiritual and neglects those brothers of his that are spiritual is also exacerbated by the fact that he has a conflict with the new man living in his body. Not just with the spiritual person, but with the new man living in his body, whom he neglects and whom he does not understand. Thus, the new man, who carries the rational abilities of the mind of Christ, is a neighbor to the one who is devoid of understanding. Whereas a man devoid of understanding, whose salvation depends on his neighbor with understanding, is our soul that has not yet been renewed by the resurrection of Christ Jesus, because it has not yet been immersed in the death of the Lord Jesus in the baptism of water, Holy Spirit, and fire. And thus, it neglects the abilities of its spirit. The help that is shown to a man devoid of understanding, although he neglects this help, is comprised of the fact that when a man devoid of understanding speaks his contempt, the man with understanding remains quiet. The thing is, is that silence in relationships with one another is a kind of art, warming the image of the righteous, in which a man with understanding stoops down to his brother devoid of understanding and does not pay attention to contempt toward his help. In Hebrew, to be silent means to be quiet, to be deaf, 
plow, prepare the soil for sowing. So when you remain silent before the man devoid of understanding and he neglects you, in doing so, you prepare his soil for sowing, to be plowed, to be prepared, to draw the commandments with the Spirit of the living God, to form and engrave the image of the righteous. This is what you do by remaining silent. When God, in a relationship with us, is silent, then His silence is an eloquent answer that either prepares the soul of our heart for sowing or forms us into His image, cutting off from us elements of the flesh that are foreign to Him. And therefore, an answer in God's silence occurs at the renewal of the house when weak-wittedness is replaced by understanding upon clothing our body in the resurrection of Christ or upon building up the power of life in our body. A psalm, a song at the renewal of the house of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. You have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you, and you healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from the grave. You have kept me alive, that I should not go down into the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face when I was troubled. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me, Lord. Be my helper. You have turned me my morning into dancing, have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. Psalms 30 verses 1 through 13. Here, David demonstrates how God in his silence forms a righteous by renewing him. If we are silent in our relationship with our brother who is devoid of understanding, when he speaks his contempt at us, this means that we have the atmosphere of brotherly love in our heart and have passed down from death to life. The fourth result of our demonstration of brotherly love in our faith is our ability to not give place to the devil. While angry, and do not sit. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption, that all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22-32. According to this passage, it follows that one of the signs of really love in our faith is our ability to not give place to the devil. 
And in this very same passage, we are met with six components according to which we can judge that we do not give place to the devil so we can keep ourselves in the boundaries of the atmosphere of brotherly love from which Satan is trying to take us out of. First, to not give place to the devil is to, while angry, not sin, so that the sun does not go down on our wrath. Second, to not give place to the devil is to whoever stole not steal any longer but rather labor, working with our hands on what is good that we may have something to give him who has need. Third, to not give place to the devil is to not allow any corrupt word to proceed out of our mouth, but only that what is good for necessary edification and faith, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Many saints speak corrupt and rotten words. They pray in tongues, and then they speak rotten words. They say dirty words. And this is such a habit that their conscience ceases to, uh, their conscience ceases to, to judge them. For to not give place to the devil is to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. As the sons of God, did before the flood. They took the daughters of men. They had married the daughters of Cain and had violated or neglected the daughters of Seth. What does this mean? This is when we are swayed by carnal services where music is magnified Music that contains sodomism, decay, corruption, and we don't even notice this. And we like this. Fifth, to not give place to the devil is to put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking with all malice. Anger might arise. God does not impute this to us as sin if we don't express it. Being angry, do not sin, it's written. And six, to not give place to the devil is to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave us. And so, the first component according to which we must judge that we do not give place to the devil so that we can keep ourselves in the boundaries of the atmosphere of brotherly love is to, while angry, not sin, so that the sun does not go down on our wrath. Each of us constantly, to one degree or another, can and do feel the emotion of anger and suffers from the eruptions of this flame hitting in us, but not every one of us is able to define and evaluate his anger, identify the source of his anger, control his outburst of anger, hide the rising amplitudes of his anger, and soothe the fury of the flame of his anger. The motion of anger itself is a certain ability of a person to react with indignation to apparent injustice and to violation of both our sovereign rights and the sovereign rights of our neighbors. And also, to resent our own ability to achieve what we want or to draw attention to ourselves. For example, in Hebrew, the word anger includes such characteristics that can completely destroy our lives. Anger means indignation, annoyance, sorrow, chagrin, rage, bitterness, envy, insult, heat, flame, ardor, poison. 
A deadly poison. In this regard, I will give several statements of philosophers, scientists, politicians, and other famous people of this world who have left a trace in, who have left a trace in the history of mankind, who acknowledge the existence of God but do not know God. This is what they say about anger. Anger enslaves and humiliates even a worthy person. Reproach in the heat of anger is not punishment but revenge. Where the anger ended, remorse began. Not only does anger bring confusion to the soul, it also binds the hands of the punisher. Each blow that we inflict in anger ultimately falls upon ourselves. Saints, Holy parents, never punish your children, never discipline them in anger. If they need to be disciplined, wait until your anger disappears. If you need to wait a day, two, or three, wait three days. And when your anger subsides, try to then, without anger, discipline your child and say, Son, remember, I promised you to discipline you because you continually violate my word. I told you not to do this. You do it. Today, I have to discipline you. And when you don't have anger, you will see that it's very difficult to discipline your child without having this anger. But when we do discipline in anger, we sin, and we don't demonstrate love toward our children. But when you discipline them without anger, they are going to see your love. And thanks to this, they are going to begin to submit and to obey you. Again, these are people who speak these phrases, phrases not knowing God. Anger is never without reason, but this reason is rarely convincing. If you are filled by anger, try to distract your attention from the subject that caused it. Thus, by removing combustible material that supports the flame, you will extinguish it. The next phrase. Weigh everything, always control yourself. Anger is a sign of the stupidity of people. Take a look here. These are people of this world. They call the anger of a person as stupidity and not wisdom. Whoever does not respond with anger to anger saves both himself and the other. The anger of good people is nothing more than an urgent need to forgive. One statement in the book of Job summarizes the above remarks about anger with these words. For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. Job chapter 5, verse 2. The Apostle James, addressing every person who has a part in the congregation of saints who are called to inherit the adoption of their body through the redemption of Christ, wrote, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. We are talking about the kind of anger in the heat of which we express our irritation, our resentment, and our disagreement with the offender. However, if we possess the above ability expressed in our understanding, thanks to which we can tame our anger before the sun goes down, then we cannot give a place to the devil so that we can keep ourselves within the boundaries of the atmosphere of brotherly love. A fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. Proverbs 12, 16. We have all the possibilities and means in the dignity of the ruling teaching of Christ embodied in our hearts and the Holy Spirit revealing the truth of this teaching in our hearts to consider ourselves dead to emotions of anger that dominate us and consider ourselves alive to God calling non-existent freedom from the power of anger as existent. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just I also told you in the time past. It's interesting that all of these components, they are in balance with one another. If you can tame your anger, you are going to be able to, when uh, dissensions come upon you, heresies come upon you, envy, murders, drunkenness, and the like, you're going to be able to tame it. If you're able to tame one of these sins, you are going to be able to tame all of them. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. The second component, according to which we must judge that we do not give place to the devil, so that we can keep ourselves in the boundaries of the atmosphere of brotherly love, is to whoever stole, not steal any longer, but rather labor, working with our hands on what is good, that we may have something to give him who has need. And again, now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you, why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. You don't know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7-10 through 10. If we use our brothers in the interests of our covetousness, we are outside the boundaries of the atmosphere of brotherly love and we are headed for eternal perdition. And therefore, within the boundaries of what atmosphere we will live on earth, exactly the same atmosphere we will inherit within the boundaries of the atmosphere of eternity. The next kind of theft is when we lead a parasitic lifestyle and do not, draw, do not withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, but scurry or lead a parasitic lifestyle. But we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, command you, meaning uh, we give you a commandment we establish, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves, 
know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we may not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6-12 The next kind of theft is when we follow people who steal God's words from each other. By following such people, we converge with thieves and instead of inheriting the kingdom of God, we inherit eternal perdition. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, he says, meaning God says, Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 30 through 32. People who are carnal, sometimes they might speak eloquently, but they are false. Um, they steal words from spiritual people. They take from their revelations. They change them, and sometimes they leave them as it is, and they speak of it as its own, as their own revelations. And this is this is called stealing. And those who follow these people will inherit perdition. The next kind of theft in relation to each other with which we give a place to the devil are the words of the messengers of God whose authorship we ascribe to ourselves because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. Joel chapter 3, verse 5. Apostle Paul writes, For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. So when we uh, distort the word of God, to benefit ourselves, then we are thieves. The next kind of theft in relation to each other, by which we give a place to the devil, is to appropriate a mercenary's pay to ourselves. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13. The next kind of theft in relation to each other, by which we give a place to the devil, is when we build our house with unrighteousness and our upper room with injustice, forcing our neighbor to work for nothing. Woe to him who built his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 13. And the most unforgivable kind of theft is when we rob God of tithes and offerings, which are the holiness and property of God, and are at our disposal but do not belong to us. Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? 
You say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing, that there will not be room enough to receive it. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Apostle Paul affirms this idea and says, Do not be deceived. Thieves shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The third component, according to which we must judge that we do not give place to the devil so we can keep ourselves in the boundaries of the atmosphere of brotherly love, is to not allow any corrupt word to proceed out of our mouth, but only that what is good for necessary edification and faith, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Let no rotten word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. In the original Greek language, the word rotten means idle, rotten, decayed, spoiled, worthless, and bad. Our words emanating from a heart that is not cleansed of dead works, no matter how correct and kind in our eyes it may seem, in the eyes of God, they are considered the evil from which the stench of our decaying, decaying flesh comes from. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, even when he says, may you be blessed, brother, may you be blessed, sister, if he carries this out of the evil treasure of his heart, if he, if he doesn't truly desire you to be blessed, then this is evil, his words are evil. But I say to you that for every idle word man may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. This is talking about not just our words, but the words that come from the heart. The idle or rotten words that we speak are words that are not the faith of our heart and are not sealed on the tablets of our heart. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or to take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you, and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Psalm chapter 50, verses 16 through 22. Each time we, against the requirements of Scripture, do not cleanse ourselves from the filth of our lips and take God's covenant into our unclean lips to justify ourselves, we give a place to the devil. Our time has come to an end. We are going to pray, and all those who desire to challenge their flesh to not give a place to the devil, you can come to the altar and we will pray for you. And God is going to give you mercy. He is going to cleanse you from sin, from shame, from the dependence on sin. And He's going to give you a new relationship between Him and you. We wait for you. We will pray for whom it is impossible. We will bend our knees or bow our heads and let the Lord bless us. Amen.
Я буду молиться вместе с вами вашей молитвой и прошу вас. I will pray along with you with your prayers and I ask you to deeply believe that God is for you, He is not against you. He has a strong desire to comfort you, to heal you from the wounds that were brought upon you by sin, to destroy the chains of dependence on your own lusts and desires, to restore relationship with you and to pour upon you his healing grace. Your eyes closed this is an element of your mystery room and your hands raised to the heavens. This is a sign that your hands are without doubt and anger. I pray with me, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I come to you. I open my heart. I love your word. I love your corrections that have poured out into my life. And I have seen myself that I am tied and bound to sin and that my lips are impure. My heart is not cleansed. I ask you to forgive me, wash me, cleanse me, heal the wounds of my heart. I accept the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, as the means for cleansing my conscience. And right now, before heaven and hell, I want to proclaim that according to your word, I am washed, I am cleansed, I am healed, I am restored, I am justified, and I am saved. May your sins and your transgressions be forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you. May He come upon you with His holy countenance and have mercy upon you. May He give you peace. May upon you fall thousands and thousands of people, of enemies, and not draw near you. May all of the blessings of the ancient hills and mountains come upon you. May all this come upon you and be fulfilled upon you and upon your descendants. And let the people say, Amen. Believe that God is faithful to His word and that which you have just done has made you free. Clean before God. Don't be ba go based on what you feel, but go based off of what you know. And now, let us manifest our unchanging manifestation. Now to Him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.